0: We're continuing in the book of Acts. And what I'm calling this morning's word is insiders and outsiders. And we're reading from the book of Acts chapter 6. So we finished reading in Acts chapter 5 last week with the account of the apostles rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They continued preaching daily in the temple and proclaiming to all the people this new way of life which was not just about doing what they were meant to do, but about being who they were meant to be. And we now follow the account of the growth of the emerging church as we come into chapter 6. So Acts chapter 6, verse 1. It was not long before the number of disciples had greatly increased and the Hellenists, they're the Greek-speaking Jews, developed a grudge against the Hebrews. The Greek widows were being neglected in the common daily provision of food and necessary supplies. Let me just explain the Hellenists to you. They were the people influenced by the ancient Greek culture and language and philosophy, which all began in the 4th century BC, when Alexander the Great conquered the then-known world, including the Middle East and Judea, Many thousands of Jews were scattered all over the Mediterranean coastal areas, across North Africa and across uh, upwards into Malta and Greece, all of those places, up to Rome, of course, and into Asia Minor, up into which is now Turkey. And over a period of time, those Jews began to practice a code of Judaism that became even stricter than it was back in Jerusalem. That often happens. People get isolated with their faith and they hang on to that. Whereas back home, things can change a little bit. Then the Romans conquered all of these nations in 65 BC. Jews had been spread out, going right back for that period of time. And Hellenistic Jews were made slaves. But in due time, they were set free and became known as the freedmen. The Hellenistic freedmen that we come across in Acts chapter 6 were descendants of the people that were made slaves by the Romans a couple of generations earlier. but the, These Jews had been there for centuries, but they were made slaves when the Romans came and they conquered Alexander's kingdom, made it the Roman Empire. So those people worshipped in their own synagogues in Jerusalem. They come back home, but they're called the freedmen. And many traditional Jews back in Jerusalem viewed Greek culture as a threat to their religious identity and they resisted Hellenistic influences, thus the underlying conflict. Some people started to miss out, the Hellenist widows weren't getting included, outsiders and insiders. So in the last few chapters we've been seeing how love was flourishing in this new community of faith. All was good, full of power and love, the new emerging church and then things go wrong. An act of unlove occurred. The widows who were of Greek or Hellenistic origin were being neglected in the previously loving act of sharing food and provision amongst the family of God. It seemed like it was easier for them to love those that were ethnically and religiously most like themselves and to ignore those that were different. Now, this was probably not done on purpose, but it was certainly an act of neglect and an offence had occurred. The apostles wisely saw this problem as a a leadership responsibility and they dealt with it as such. The solution that the Twelve came up with was not to preach against complaining on the one side or against selfishness on the other side. That would be so easy to do, to say, you people, stop complaining. You other people, you would be more kind. No, they realised that they had to find wisdom from God here. They had to bring some structure into the administrative side of things so that the people could be more mindful that God was among them and more alert to the needs of those who were perhaps on the fringe. The offence could be avoided with simple, uncomplicated, relational and relaxed structures. So we now read in verse 2. The twelve apostles called a meeting of all the believers and addressed the entire assembly to resolve the matter. They explained that it was not up to them to become hands on in the fair distribution of food and goods for the needy, and so neglect their ministry in the Word of God. So they directed the other disciples to choose from among all the believers seven upright and honest men who were recognised for their integrity and who were full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. They said they would appoint those men to look after such matters as these. The apostles explained to the people that they had to give themselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the teaching of the word. The entire company of believers were happy with that arrangement. They chose Stephen, a man of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochoros, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a Gentile from Antioch, who was earlier converted to Judaism. They presented these men to the apostles, who first prayed about the choice that had been made, then they laid hands on those men and commissioned them. Now, nowhere does it actually say that they were called deacons, but it's presumed that these were the first deacons. They were also great evangelists, as we see at least in the ministries of Stephen and Philip. Later on in the development of the church, Paul writes to Timothy and talks to him about elders and then deacons. And he uses the word deacons, but it's not used here. But you can see the same kind of thing, the same principle applied. So this is the first instance, as I said, of the doctrine of the laying on of hands for the impartation of grace and appointment to certain callings in the newfound church. There were wonderful results coming out of that wise decision, as the next verse goes on to say. Verse 7, then the word of the Lord spread and reached many, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and many Jewish priests became obedient to the faith. We talked about Nicholas before. From Antioch a converted Jew he would have been in the, one of the Greek colonies so Nicholas was a Hellenist being described as Nicholas a Gentile from Antioch converted to Judaism so he no doubt was a good choice for helping the inclusion of some of the outsiders so there was wisdom in the way they chose people and we now see the account of one of those seven men Stephen Going forth in faith and power with great wonders and signs following his ministry. Get to verse 8. Stephen, full of faith and empowered by the Holy Spirit, worked great wonders and miracles among the people. Some of the members of the synagogue of the freedmen, remember them? They had their own synagogues in Jerusalem, including men from Cyrene, the home of Simon who carried the cross for Jesus, and Alexandria and Cilicia, the homeland of Saul of Tarsus, and Asia. They then began to formally debate with Stephen, but they could not prevail against the wisdom of his arguments and the power of the spirit in his words. So opposition to Stephen mostly came, as the scriptures say here, from those of the synagogue of the freedmen which was understandable because of their passionate intensity of obedience to the code of the law and their disapproving perception of the slackness of the traditional Jerusalem Jews. Things change over time. Saul, as well as being a Pharisee, was also considered to be a Hellenist with a depth of understanding for the Greek philosophies and culture You see, he was from Cilicia, one of the places where the freedmen came from. And that was generations back. But these were strict Jews. But Saul went to the top of the class. He was also a Pharisee. And he also would have been involved with the Hellenistic synagogue in Jerusalem. And this would also explain his intense condemnation of Stephen. It's evident that he was present for the events surrounding Stephen's trial, which is what is happening here. It's the setting up for the trial. Stephen just is too good with the Word of God. So Saul was present for the events at this time, which we read about, we will read about more intensely and dramatically in chapter 7 and 8. And it's probable that Saul, as a student, of the great Gamaliel, who was the top man that taught the Pharisees. We saw last week how Paul was a student of Gamaliel, and it's probable that he even participated in heated debates with Stephen in the temple. So these are inferences drawn from the background, the history, and the kind of people, and also something we've been talking about just a little while ago, God is sovereign over all. He works everything around into his plan with people's histories, their upbringing, their personalities, their belief systems and their circumstances and the timing of his intervention into their lives. He's done that with you. So these freedmen and other Jewish leaders, of course, coaxed men to testify... That they had heard Stephen speak blasphemously against Moses and against God, stirring up hostility against Stephen amongst the people and the Jewish elders who arrested Stephen and brought him before the council. God had purposed tribalism for Israel. Because they were a chosen nation that God had laid claim to as his own, forbidding them to mix with other nations. So you can see why my kind of conclusion was that, or opinion was that these problems that that occurred with the Jews and some being left out, they weren't purposely trying to punish people, but there was some kind of a barrier. Well, Well, they're different. We're Jews and we're tribal. And we've been told not to mix. There's something in them. So God had laid claim to them. He forbid them, or forbade them, to mix with other nations. And he dealt with their infidelity whenever they did it. They had no choice. Israel, as a nation, for 1,500 years, was the representative of humanity as a people under God. They were not to let the outside world in And they thought that meant forever. Even though God directed them to welcome the sojourners within their gates, perhaps that was a foretaste of things to come. But on this occasion, there was a problem. And it was something that God needed to deal with because something new was about to happen. So into this large, flourishing, powerful, happy church in Jerusalem, there began to appear those who were not perhaps regarded as the insiders that they should be. Many would have remembered Jesus telling the disciples when he sent them out two by two, don't go and preach to the Gentiles. We also see in Acts chapter 9 that Peter had great difficulty in going and preaching to the Gentile centurion Cornelius and his Gentile family. God always makes room. He gives space for a fringe to exist. And even though the Hellenists were Jews, they were different enough to seem like being a fringe group. This same tribalism exists today, even in Christianity. It exists in Christianity with 36,000 Protestant denominations, and every one of them is a little bit better than the other one, depending who you're with. So not only 36,000 Protestant denominations. There's other religious and cultural prejudices. I'm talking about in in Christianity. All of us, in one way or another, have experienced being on the fringe, an outsider. What's going on in there? I loved it when that charismatic movement began to embrace the body of Christ. And people were seeing one another as God's people together. I, I dream for those days. To return, They will. There has to be God that does that. But you know what it's like to be feeling like you're on the fringe. It's not nice. So this was happening in that church. The church in the book of Acts did not yet understand that Jesus had brought all of humanity into himself. What a shock. We thought it was just the Jews. And how wonderfully strange that the soon-to-be Paul the Apostle now starts to appear on the horizon of God's plan of salvation for the world. Just at the time when insiders and outsiders was the big deal, God has got a man that's going to bring the revelation to solve all of that, and he didn't even know because he was an outsider in an insider world. Verse 13. They instructed these witnesses. These are the... The leaders that were debating against stephen the freedmen hellenists and the other leaders they instructed witnesses to say that stephen had also consistently spoken blasphemously against the holy temple and against the law they'd already said that they'd spoken against moses but now it's against the holy temple you don't do that they said They had even heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth was going to destroy the Holy Temple to change those traditions that were handed down to them by Moses. The council members took Stephen before them to interrogate him. And as they questioned him, they found themselves gazing at his face, which began to shine like the face of an angel. That's verse 15 in Acts chapter 6, which happens to be the last verse, very short chapter. So, these people were the Jewish opponents to Stephen, who we read about in the next chapter. And they laid their clothes down at the feet of a young man named Saul before they stoned Stephen to death. He just is inserted into history. The Saul that was the soon to become Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles. And in the next chapter, we read about Saul... Hearing the most extraordinary revelation of the plan of salvation through Jesus Christ to the world through Stephen. That was his first real sermon that he heard. This revelation that Saul, Paul, resisted that day was ordained to come to the Jews first and then somehow to the whole world, beginning with himself. This is the Paul who later wrote, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. No more insiders and outsiders in the entire world as far as God is concerned. Nobody is an outsider to God. He desires for everyone to become an insider with himself. That's why he created humanity, created us. So going back to the offence that occurred in the early church where some people felt like outsiders who were being overlooked, it shows how easy it is to create division and conflict even when you're not trying to. We read in verse 12 about the angry and influential people who stirred up hostility against Stephen amongst the people and the Jewish elders. I said it's easy to have insiders and outsiders without even trying, but there are some people that try. And those people were trying to stir up division. That's one way of making yourself alliances and splitting off an entire group so that you can have power over them. Well, with Stephen, it was killing and try and stop the progress of that church. Can't fight against God, but they didn't know that. But that's how a political power agenda seeks to usurp power and influence for their own gain, by causing resentment and division and hostility within a community or a group, setting ordinary people against one another And when this happens on a large scale, it can have global consequences, and it is happening now. We live in times when there seems to be an agenda managed by influential political power brokers of creating a world full of resentful victims that feel badly treated by anybody who's not passionate about constantly affirming their personal special interests. An activist media that trades in conflict, outrage, and sensation coaxes voluntary victims into fueling a revolution against an unknown group of hateful, non-inclusive oppressors. This spirit of polarisation permeates the soul of our society. It is sick at the moment. It needs healing. And the true enemy is the spirit of blindness over people today not the feverish people who have been blinded they are not the enemy christians are not there seeking to oppose other people politically as the enemy and there is too much of that happening god wants to reach those people those that are blinded he wants them to have their eyes opened and he's working with you not to fight a political or religious war against them, but to reach them in your world. I'm not saying get out on the streets or, or get into, onto a public platform and do it. Just there are people to reach. There is enough love and grace and faith in God's people today to overcome any of this blindness. Firstly, within the church itself. That's a job. And a half. And there is also an abounding grace to hear the cry of distress in the world and in the church, and to open the eyes of a conflicted world that has never felt so helpless. You're part of that. I believe God's equipping people to know how to reach the hearts and minds, the souls of people who are in distress. And they're not crying warfare. You know what they're crying? Help! The answer is not get your act together, believe what I believe, get your head straight. No, the answer is to listen to that cry of help and be able to bring healing into that wounding and confusion and distress. The cry is there. Help! There's a lot of people thinking, maybe I can help. But God will bring people into his appointed place in a very ordinary way. And say you can help. You can help. I'm going to finish with this scripture. Philippians 2 verse 14. Stay away from complaining and arguing. So that no one can speak a word of blame against you. Live God ordered lives as God's children in a dark world. Full of people who are biased and willful. Shine. Among them, like lights, holding out to them the word of life. You can say yes to that. Amen. Amen.